You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted again to welcome Yasmin Abu Taleb to be with us today. Yasmin, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you were last here, along with your co-author, Damien Paletta, on July 7th of last year, 2021, when we hosted you f- to uh, tell us about your New York Times bestseller, Nightmare Scenario, Inside the Trump Administration's Response to the Pandemic that Changed History, which was a t- remains a terrific book, and we were delighted to be able to host you then. That was that was a fun day. That was the day we found out about the bestseller list right after the event. So it was a, it was a fun day all around. That's a really fun day. Yeah. <laughs> we did the podcast, we did the event, and then we found out. So Yasmin is the health policy reporter at the Washington Post. You've been really busy. We've been looking and reading your, your work carefully, and we just wanted to bring you in and have a discussion around some of these big, big topics that you're, cha- that you're taking on. Let's start with you reported last week on the administration's projection of a wave this fall, a COVID wave of 100 million. And that wave was tied to the administration's request for major new funding. We know how problematic that's been. The request up to now stumbled along in various forms and is still out there as a question of how to get back up on our feet and have sustainable funding. Forecasts like this have generally not been very effective at rallying political will. Are things different now? I don't think they are, to be honest. I think maybe one of the things that's different is we've been through so many of these waves now. So we know that a, a fall winter wave of 100 million infections is is completely possible. That would be not quite as severe as the Omicron wave, but pretty close. I think the, the Omicron wave was more around 130, 140 million because there was a thought that so many infections went unreported. So this would be, you know, a little bit under that. And we see right now, every time we think we have a little bit of a reprieve, these new variants come in. So right now we're dealing with all these Omicron subvariants that are more transmissible and more able to escape immunity than the last one. So it's definitely not outside the realm of possibility. This doesn't feel like an alarmist prediction just to try to get funding. We spoke with a number of experts who said, yeah, this is a possibility, but we just don't know. And I think the problem is this virus has been so unpredictable since it began, you know, two and a half years ago, and no one's really succeeded in successfully predicting what's going to happen that I it's it's a bit of a losing game now because it's either going to surprise you and do something much worse than what we could have anticipated or it'll behave differently so I think there's just there's not a lot of trust in predictions generally because the virus has always found ways to surprise us and never behave the way people said it's going to is it a losing situation for the administration no matter what though because they can't really predict and then at the same time they can't try to you know downplay things when they know scientifically that the the virus continues to mutate and you know we're going to have to constantly be keeping up with that so what is it for the administration that your reporting shows I think that's a great point that you made. It is it is a losing battle for the administration. I think they really learned a hard lesson last summer when they said there was going to be this summer of freedom from the virus. And of course, Delta came. And if you've noticed, they really haven't made that mistake again. They haven't come out and said, OK, we're free from this. It's fine. Now they've they've learned to calibrate their message each time when things get better to say things are better now. We hope it stays this way. 
but we might need to put mask mandates back in place. We might need to, you know, whatever it is. So with this wave, I think the thing that's making them really anxious is that these and th- and to be clear, this prediction is if there is no, you know, what they called a curveball. So this is a continuation of Omicron subvariants that we're seeing in the U.S. that we're seeing spread in South Africa. This does not even account for if some completely new variant comes through with a bunch of mutations we haven't seen yet. So in this case, you know, they they are saying, look, we went into the Omicron wave fairly unprepared. We didn't have enough tests. Uh, We didn't have enough people boosted. You know, the vaccines are preventing severe infection and death, but this is not a long-term strategy. We can't just keep having people get boosted every couple of months with immunity dropping off. So they also want to be able to buy next generation vaccines if Pfizer and Moderna are successful with these bivalent vaccines they have in, in trials right now. We still don't even know how effective those are going to be. Those, who, who knows? But they want to be able to invest in a longer term vaccine strategy, vaccines that are more effective against the variants we're dealing with now. So what they're saying is, look, with Omicron, yes, there are things we could have done better. It caught us by surprise. This time, if we go in unprepared, if we don't have enough tests, if we don't have enough vaccine doses, if we don't have enough antivirals, this is completely on us because we've been through this enough times and we need the money so we can prepare now. I think they've learned over and over and over. You can't start buying stuff when the wave has started. It's way too late at that point. Got to get out ahead of it. I think there is anxiety behind all of this, right? They, They put in place in March a new strategy, pandemic strategy for the country, which made all sorts of adjustments around how the pandemic has changed. We've acquired much higher protections through vaccinations. We've got antivirals coming. They made that change. Then they came in with this bold budget request with the 88 billion and a five-year mandatory investment, which is really unprecedented for public health, public health security. It's a huge ask. They're running out of money for tests and antivirals and the like. They're in an electoral season. They own this pandemic even more than Trump owned it in terms of the amount of time that's elapsed, the number of people who have died. A million, we've crossed the million mark. So they know they have tools, they have a strategy, they've got competent people in place, they've got new leadership with Ashish Shah coming on, but they're very nervous about their ability to sustain and moving forward. And they're very dependent on a deeply divided Congress to support them and help them. And, I mean, you mentioned the the midterms this year going into an election season. If they don't get this money now where Democrats control the House and the Senate, if Republicans take control of one or both chambers of Congress, it is going to be exponentially harder. I mean, at that point, you're probably well into a wave in November, and it's going to be exponentially harder to get some of the longer-term funding you need to keep preparing for these waves we could be dealing with for some unknown amount of time. I mean, that's a really good point is, you know, right around the corner, this funding could be cut off. You were very careful and detailed in the way you dissected the Trump administration's performance in 2020. First phase of COVID-19 in the book that you and Damien wrote, Nightmare Scenario. So now looking back over 16 months of this administration, President Biden, how do you grade it? How do you compare their performance? I've thought a lot about this question because you see both administrations really struggling with the pandemic, but for completely different reasons. So with the Trump administration, as we talked about last year, 
they really wanted to will this problem away after a couple of months. They they took it seriously in the beginning, and then they really didn't want to deal with it anymore. And and you had all this political infighting and drama that was that was ruining the response. That's not been the case with the Biden administration, but there are certain issues you see that persisted between both administrations. So, I mean, the number one one, I think, would be the CDC. The CDC faced very similar challenges under the Biden administration that it did under the Trump administration. There wasn't political interference under the Biden administration, but I think then it became clear that this agency had much deeper systemic problems than some Trump officials, which was bad, obviously, that the Trump officials were were messing with their reports and trying to influence guidances. But the dysfunction in the agency is much deeper than any one administration. You know, you saw the Biden administration take an exceedingly hands-off approach to the agency, and they were still facing challenges at every turn. Clumsy communications, unforced errors. Absolutely. Over and over. A lot of mixed messages, too. The, I think that's probably one of the the biggest challenges and has been one of the biggest hindrances to the national response is the mixed messages, not being totally transparent with people about what you know and don't know at any given point in time. It's gotten better, but that's a you know a year and a half, two years into the pandemic. That has not been the case from the beginning. They were back and forth on masks and didn't explain it very well last spring. And then, you know, they were late with with explaining that breakthrough infections were happening with the Delta variant. And that really surprised people and I think caused a big dip in trust. The administration, you know, did make the mistake of thinking we were out of the woods last summer with the vaccines. I do think they've tried to fix that a number of times since then. But you see them struggling because this virus is so stubborn and has behaved so differently than any scientist, any global agency, any expert could have predicted. And I think one thing that's important to point out is it's not like there's a country we can look at where we're like, they figured it out. If only we had done exactly what they had done, then we'd be in better shape. It's a persistent virus. No one has figured it out. Everyone keeps dealing with waves and challenges. But this administration, I think one of the things that surprised me was the polarization got even worse. In 2021. Exactly. When we thought this was going, the temperature was going to come down and it was going to become calmer and more civil, the exact opposite happened. Right. And every single thing they did, I guess it's not surprising, but uh, vaccine mandates, uh, mask mandates, uh, their messaging on what people needed to do to, to combat the pandemic or schools, you know, everything became this lightning rod. And that's made the response so much harder because you you have like 50 different pandemic responses across the country. You don't have the country coming together to fight the virus in, in the way we maybe did the first, you know, eight weeks or so of the pandemic in 2020. We've never really had that kind of unity since. And certainly that's contributed to the confusion out there and the mixed messages. In your reporting, how do you think the administration, A, do you think the administration is really cognizant of how confused people are? Take, for instance, you know, we're just told to, if you're over 50, like me and Steve, you're told to get a second booster. Well, you go and get the second booster, it knocks you out for a day, day and a half, and you're wondering, wow, should I have done this? And a lot of people out there just aren't doing it because they're saying, I've had enough. There's a lot of confusion and people just, even though the administration clearly said, if you're over 50, go get it. There's confusion about that issue. There's confusion about a whole host of issues. How Are, are they aware and are they trying to address that piece by piece? I do think they're aware. I think there is a sense of being overwhelmed at 
the scale of the problem, the, the degree of misinformation and disinformation that there is, the fact that you have a lot of lawmakers and governors sending completely different messages than what the federal government is sending. So, so much of this depends on where you live, what news sources you're consuming, what your Facebook looks like, you, you know, what your social media looks like. I think that's the thing I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think there's there's a sense of it's not despair, but there's it's it, this the disinformation problem is so overwhelming, and I don't think anyone has figured out how you attack it. And it's so widespread when it comes to COVID in in every realm: vaccines, antivirals, miracle cures. Even though we have plenty of things that do work, it's all over the place. And so I do think they know that people are confused, but I think the problem is anyone in the Biden administration is just going to be distrusted by half of America or whatever percentage of America, no matter what they're saying, no matter who they are. We're so polarized that they can't they can't reach half of America. Exactly. So it doesn't matter who they bring in. If they are coming in to work for the Biden administration, they're just not going to break through to a segment of the population. I think bringing in Ashish Jha, he is a very skilled communicator. He's been all over TV. He's very good at sort of breaking things down for people. And he's been on all different kinds of channels. Yeah. Newsmax, uh, One America News, Fox. He does everything to try to reach everybody. Right. And and so I think, you know, bringing him in is an attempt to try to address that. I just don't know how successful it's going to be given all these other issues. Do you see any evidence of innovation on communication that's had any impact on pushing back on disinformation and conspiracy theories? I mean, we had a... For 18 months, we had a task force here focused on the United States on vaccine confidence and disinformation. And there are a lot of people working in different disciplines that you don't think of, right? There's machine learning, there's tech, and those who understand how algorithms operate, they're psychologists and anthropologists. They all kind of came to the table with lots of suggestions. And I think one of the most compelling was simply that the public health field is way behind in its ability to communicate to a public and speaks the wrong language, speaks too slowly, and that there needs to be a kind of rehaul around our whole approach to communications on these matters as a, as a government. But I haven't seen much in the way of a national commission on this issue. You know, there's been some efforts to try and create a institution that will have authority in tracking this, but then it's cast as big brother. That's a great question. I mean, one thing I'm surprised they're not doing more of is trying to reach people on social media, hiring people who are really adept at TikTok or, you know, whatever it might be to try to reach people there. Because the number of people who watch a White House briefing or a CDC briefing on the latest state of the virus is probably (laughs) people like us. Tiny. Yeah. Just just us nerds. Right. (laughs) Normal people are not going to sit there and watch the White House coronavirus briefing and be able to make sense of it. I mean, even when we watch it, we need a couple people watching it, paying close attention, taking notes on different aspects. And, you know, same with cable TV hits. You can reach people that way. But, you know, the way people consume their news is so varied. And it's actually a small audience. You're talking about one to three million at any given time on cable. Exactly. And so, I mean, Steve, to your point, I'm, I'm surprised that there hasn't been a bigger government effort on this. They, they talk a lot about it. They know it's a huge problem. I haven't seen it addressed in a really deep way. And you see, if you look on TikTok, if you look on Instagram, where there are millions and millions of people, there are these um, doctors and public health people who are really creative right. in how they try to reach people. The Bob Walkers of this world. 
Right. Or Twitter threads. I mean, Twitter is a small social media platform compared to an Instagram or a TikTok, but, you know, who are create and it's not just about COVID. It's, you know, people trying to tell people to get their colonoscopies or whatever it might be. And they do dances. And, you know, I think the sort of standard briefing reporters cover it, people read the news is just not an effective way to reach the masses right now. Right. And we know that people trust their doctors the most. So you would think there'd be some kind of nationwide effort to get doctors who are influencers, others in the world of science who are influencers to really take to social media to combat some of this misinformation. Right. And you've seen the White House, you know, they did one, my colleague reported on a meeting they did with TikTok influencers a couple months back about uh, Ukraine and Russia and misinformation related to that. I mean, it feels like you could take a more systemic, regular approach like that with with COVID because that's social media is where most of the misinformation is is proliferating. My favorite thing about that was that Saturday Night Live parodied President Biden and Jen Psaki meeting with the TikTok influencers. And it was they didn't learn much on Saturday Night Live, but it was a great, you know, situation that, you know, all of a sudden the White House is taking TikTok so seriously. Right. You have to if you want to communicate to people. There's been a lot of effort to try and move forward the idea of a national commission. Along the lines of a 9-11 commission. Philip Zelico at UVA has been very busy with a project that we've contributed to. Senators Murray and Burr in the PREVENT Act include a title along this. It's not clear that it's anything of this kind is going to happen, actually. There's a whole bunch of political reasons which make that difficult. But if we were able to get something that had mixed political leadership to it, had real credibility and gravitas, and could take on this issue of disinformation and how the public health world is going to have to communicate better. I think that could be a major contribution um, in this period because there's so many people that are thinking about it and living it and seeing it. Let's talk about the courts. You know, they've become a real battleground on health policy, right? We had Judge Mizell, Federal Judge Mizell, on April 18th threw out the, the mask mandate that President Biden had imposed the first day of office. It was about two weeks before it was likely to be lifted in any case, but it really kind of blew a hole in CDC's authorities. And now administration's got to go back and challenge that in the appellate court in the 11th district. Not clear if this is going to be successful. Now we have the impending action by the Supreme Court on Roe versus Wade, 49 years into women's rights to abortion. Have we entered a new era where we're going to be paying a hell of a lot more attention to courts and health policy? I think we have to. I think so much of health policy has been litigated in the courts over the last few years. It's not just COVID. There was uh, Obamacare. You know, there were Medicaid things fewer people were paying attention to, Medicaid work rules under the Trump administration. Things that both administrations or administrations of either party have tried to do in the courts over the last few years have, or I'm sorry, through administrative action have generally been stopped or upheld by the courts. That's always the real test. And when I was reporting on Judge Mizell striking down the federal mask mandate on transportation, you know, one of the things that came up was if the administration decided to appeal, which they did, I think there was some nervousness about this. Would it going to the 11th district, because that's a court where there are more conservative judges, and if they say they upheld 
Judge Mizell's decision that, yes, the CDC had overstepped its authority, do you undercut the CDC's authority even more by risking that appeal? And, you know, when it came to Roe v. Wade, when this leaked Supreme Court opinion came out, my colleague and I did a story on the Biden administration looking at what options they had and not a lot of good options. And people privately told us, look, we know whatever we do is going to get tied up in the courts. We're going to get sued by Republican attorneys general. And the truth is they'll probably win on a lot of their challenges, whatever they try to do. And so there are these constant political calculations of what's worth it and what's not, because ultimately just going to get stopped by the courts. And you saw the Trump administration face a lot of the same problems with some of their biggest administrative efforts, you know, the immigration ban, DACA. I think we're seeing a number of massive administrative priorities ultimately being decided by the courts. And the courts are increasingly politicized at every level. Absolutely. And I and I think the other concern from a lot of legal scholars and, you know, we've read a lot about this from Chief Justice John Roberts is the perception that the courts are politicized and that people are ruling based on which president appointed them as opposed to the way I think someone like Roberts or other sort of legal scholars would like the courts to be viewed, which is a check on executive and legislative power. And just following the law. Exactly. That it, it doesn't matter who appointed you. And some of those comments by Roberts, Clarence Thomas just said something recently about his concern about the courts becoming politicized. That seems awfully long overdue, those remarks, I mean, in terms of waking up to reality. Why are Democrats, you know, why has this administration been caught off guard, been caught flat-footed on something like the Mizell judgment or the leak of the draft opinion, Alito's first draft opinion on Roe versus Wade? Just seemed like it came like a shock to everyone. But then when you step back from them, you're like, this was pretty predictable. I'll separate these out. I think with Judge Mizell's decision, when we actually went and looked at the lawsuit, it's it's not from like a group of a dozen Republican attorneys general where, you know, an administration might traditionally be closely tracking what's happening. It was from this sort of fringe anti-vaccination group, you know, a file in Wyoming. Wyoming. That, that went shopping for the right judge. Right. You know, filing on behalf of two Florida residents, it on its face, it's not a lawsuit you would think you need to pay a ton of attention to. And this group has been filing lawsuits all over the country with some mixed success. Sometimes they've succeeded, sometimes they haven't. So it's I think the idea of them taking on the federal government, you just wouldn't put a ton of stock in that. And this, I think to the administration, the federal mask mandate seems so clearly within the CDC's authority. And they have extended it time and time again since January 2021 without issue. So I don't think they anticipated there being another issue. And I, so I think that ruling really came out of left field for them. They were not prepared for it. Well, this brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. So the administration you know, had a pretty singular focus on COVID and rebuilding the economy until Ukraine. Now we have Ukraine. Are they distracted? How can they not be distracted? I think they're fighting so many battles right now. And this actually came up in reporting on how much political capital are they going to expend on 
various efforts to to try to uh, uphold abortion protection. So they're fighting, you know, Ukraine, and that's a, a massive foreign policy challenge. They're fighting inflation and gas prices. That's a huge domestic challenge. They've got Biden's domestic agenda has just been stalled for months. And are they going to get any pieces of it before, you know, they're likely to lose one or both chambers of Congress? They need to get the COVID funding money. Uh, they're dealing with a virus that just keeps finding new ways to mutate and, and to spread across the country. So I mean, this administration from day one has been battling on so many different fronts that I think, you know, it has hurt them when when it comes time. And and on Roe v. Wade, they say they knew this was a possibility. They've had task forces about it and they've been thinking about it. But I think that is very different than knowing something like that decision, however it, it ends up taking form, is is imminent. And the leak obviously came well before they expected an actual ruling. Let's talk about some of our major institutions. We've talked a little bit about CDC, but CDC, NIH, FDA, they're all in a bit of a funk right now and struggling with declining legitimacy and popular trust. We are in this moment where there's deep skepticism and more open criticism of them. What's it going to take to turn that around? I mean, I'm positive maybe what we do need is much better communication and much stronger leadership than what we've seen there in what, do you, what are your thoughts? That's a great question. I think I could get paid a ton of money if I knew the answer to that question. Uh-huh. Anyone who does know the answer, I think, will get paid a ton of money. But I think these are not agencies that all of America normally pays a lot of attention to. I mean, CDC guidances are not normally something that everyone's sort of waiting to see what the agency is going to say. It's not rolling off the wire. Exactly. And I, I've talked to a lot of people across both administrations about, you know, what happened to these agencies? Why weren't they ready for this moment? And the truth is they just weren't built for it. And I think that's the root of the problem. The CDC was not built to be the agency at the front of a global pandemic. They can deal with a foodborne illness outbreak or, you know, a local measles outbreak or something. Some They just were not prepared or built for something of this scale. And so I think, you know, Steve, you had mentioned earlier this this $88 billion funding request. I think this pandemic has taught us that we may need to fundamentally rethink how our health agencies are structured, how the government is structured. I mean, going back to the 9-11 Commission, the Department of Homeland Security came out of 9-11. I'm frankly shocked that there isn't discussion or some sort of bipartisan commission thinking about Do we need an entirely new agency ready to deal with biomedical threats or naturally evolving viruses and infections that is not just part of the responsibility of HHS or part of the responsibility of CDC, but an agency entirely focused on that with the amount of resources Homeland Security gets? I mean, I I don't I'm surprised that there isn't more of a discussion about just completely rethinking of how we deal with a virus like this, because clearly this didn't work. Well, this is sort of where. When Eric Lander was at heading up the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, when they put forward their first $64 million billion proposal in September, they're talking about mission control. They're talking about creating a mission control, not indicating where that was going to be. But that idea sort of faded in terms of a new institution that would pull these pieces together with the kind of authority that was hoped for when, D- when the Homeland Security was created. And they, we've gotten stuck in getting to having that national commission. Our politics have prevented us from getting to that, to that step. You've talked a lot about, in your writing recently, how much it depends on where you live, if you're rural or urban, 
northern or southern, and what your status is, whether you're a woman, whether you're of color, what's your economic class, in terms of how you experience the pandemic, what level of vulnerability, what level of struggle, what level of protection you have. Say a bit more about that. I mean, I I thought those were very illuminating pieces. Well, thank you. I mean, we know that there were disparities in the pandemic from the very beginning, but I think they're especially stark right now because the administration will say, and, and lots of political leaders, Democratic, Republican leaders will say, we have the tools to deal with this. You know, we do, this doesn't need to dominate our lives. We have vaccines. We have boosters. We have antivirals. We have high quality masks. We have all these things where you can protect yourself because there's been so much discussion of did, have we left the vulnerable behind? Have we left them to fend for themselves because we're not taking this collective approach to the pandemic anymore. And I think if you live in Washington, D.C., or, you know, any sort of major metropolitan city where you've got lots of good hospitals around, parts of the city are very affluent. You can buy a bunch of KN95s or N95s off Amazon if you want to. They're not cheap, you know, but it's it's not going to, to break the budget for you. Uh, you have a doctor you can call if you get COVID who can prescribe you Paxlovid or whatever the appropriate antiviral is for you. Yeah, it's maybe not that scary anymore, you know, and and you can work remotely with no problem or take paid leave with no problem. COVID is really kind of an inconvenience to those people who are otherwise healthy. And I mean, I hear it all the time, like, if okay, if I get COVID, I get COVID, you know, I'll I'll, I'll just deal with it. I'll be out for a week or two or or whatever it is. Until you get long haul COVID and then you're really upset that you had that attitude. Exactly. But I mean, for so much of the country, that is just not the reality that they're living. Essential workers, they've been facing this challenge from the beginning. They cannot work remote. They often don't get paid leave or don't have good paid leave policies. Or maybe they burn through their paid leave for something else. They've got a, a slew of child care issues if they do get sick or they're living in these multi-generational households where it's just impossible to quarantine or uh, not infect someone who's maybe even more vulnerable than them. They're more likely to have comorbidities that put them at higher risk of long-haul COVID or severe infection. And getting Paxlovid is, is a nightmare. I mean, it's a nightmare for anyone right now. But especially for someone who a lot of people don't have a primary care doctor, a lot of people might have health insurance, but it's not good health insurance. And, you know, it's just I wrote that story and a couple of stories about this because I think a lot of people are losing sight of the reality that so much of the country is still facing with the pandemic. COVID is not something they can kind of brush away or view as an inconvenience if they get it and then they'll be back on their feet in a week. It would still completely devastate them, whether economically or health-wise or any other number of ways. And like Steve said, the way you experience it depends entirely on your job, your socioeconomic status, where you live, what kind of access to healthcare you have. And I think we're losing sight of that because we've been in this for so long that understandably people want to feel like, okay, it's the same as any other virus we deal with. We're just, we just we got to move on. Yeah. And back to areas like D.C., you have people who are in the policy community and around in and around government. Their biggest decision is whether they attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner or whether they go to a, a banquet or even just go out to eat at a restaurant inside, as opposed to people who you just pointed out are dealing with much more difficult decisions. Absolutely. I mean, this this came up a lot, too, when the CDC loosened its mask guidance a few weeks ago. My, my colleague and I did a story at the time about vulnerable people who felt left behind by that policy. And actually, something that a, uh, one of the women I spoke to really stuck with me about how you think about when you should wear a mask. There are so many settings where people don't have the option of, of not going, like the grocery store 
or planes or trains or, you know, there's a lot of if you go indoor to a restaurant, people are probably making some kind of calculated decision, maybe not the servers, you know, but that's how I've I've thought a lot about, you know, wearing a mask. Where do I have a responsibility to make sure I'm not just protecting myself, but other people, even if things are lower threat right now? And I just think in those settings where people have to go, they really don't have the option of avoiding them. That's the place to to wear a mask and to just be considerate because people can't stay in their homes forever. There's sort of this mentality of like, well, if you're scared, stay home. Like, that's not realistic. You know, the, the gridiron meeting and the White House Correspondents Association meeting, I think for a lot of Americans reading about that, they're looking at this and they're thinking, that's Washington political and media elite gathering at these gar- and making fun of each other and having a grand time. And look, complete disregard of all protections. And then when many of them get infected, it's like a shrug, right? Now, nobody was hospitalized, but nonetheless, the disregard across the elite, Dems, Republicans, all sorts of different media, and then the kind of shrug and relative indifference afterwards. I think that led to a certain amount of worsening cynicism across the country about, well, why do any of us care at this point? Absolutely. I mean, the people in charge, the policymakers and the reporters who have been warning about the dangers of COVID are all the ones who decided to to go to these dinners and to go to these gatherings. And so, you know, there is a sense of, I think, like you said, cynicism or, you know, what everyone kind of fending for themselves now, because it's the very people who have been, you know, sort of the, the, the people warning about these types of gatherings. And there is a divide on whether people take calculated risks like that, given their health status and access to healthcare, whatever else it is. But it can seem, I think, very out of touch with what we were just talking about, which is the reality a lot of people are still living. Yeah, I, a friend of mine was there with her husband at the gridiron and normally extremely cautious and conscious about all these things and was describing how, you know, the, the peer pressure and, the, and everything else was just overwhelming. They both come home, they both get infected, they infect their children and their grandchildren. And, you know, the kind of sense of regret and shame was just extraordinary in that sort of setting. And I thought, that could have been me. Sure. That could have been me. I could have behaved exactly like that. You know, I mean, you be, you know, pointing a finger and saying, shame on you. I mean, it's, it's, we're in a moment when we all are tired, exhausted, and we, we feel protected, as you were saying. We feel like we have these things, so we're not going to get too sick. But my brother's an academic. He, he's been exceedingly careful with his family. He got sick and he wound up in the hospital last weekend. Pretty sick, pretty seriously ill. And, uh, you know, I think all of us were like, when he got sick, was like, he'll be all right. He's double boosted. They're getting him Paxlovid. He'll be fine. There's a sort of assumption we're not the ones still at, at high risk or we've got access to all these things. So it's it's not going to be us, the ones who are dying or getting hospitalized right now. There's I've, I, Dr. Burks actually talked about this when she was going out and talking about her book. There's this sort of like most of the people who are dying are unvaccinated and people are like, well, they're unvaccinated. They've made that choice. But actually, my colleagues wrote about how a growing share of people who are dying are the vaccinated. It's so frustrating. I would love to write about something else and to not have to think about COVID ever again in my life the same way we all feel. But it's just not the reality that we're living. Are there any stories that give you or or anything that you're reporting on lately that gives you hope for the future? We always like to ask our guests that as we close. You know, what, what gives you optimism? 
That's a great question. I think there have been a lot of people who have really stepped up throughout the pandemic. And also, I mean, the scientific advancements, innovations throughout the pandemic have been just extraordinary. I mean, the fact that we've been in this for just over two years and we have three highly effective vaccines that the United States uses more globally, an antiviral that is 90 percent effective in keeping people out of the hospital with more on the horizon and, you know, monoclonal antibodies that the scientists are trying to move. They can't move as quickly as the virus, but they are moving pretty quickly in trying to come up with next generation vaccines. I think the amount we've learned in such a short time and you know, the, like we were talking about, the pandemic's still here. It's still a threat, but we do have way more tools to deal with it. For a lot of people, it is not as scary as it was two years ago because, you know, at least if you get sick, you've got treatments or doctors know more. I think those advancements should give people hope that we'll, you know, continue along that track and, and, and figure this out. I just hope that the sort of collective approach at some point maybe becomes a bit more collective than it's been. Well, Yasmin, thank you so much for making time, coming over and being with us today. And thanks so much for all your great reporting. We, we read it with great interest and we'll hope to see you again soon. I hope so. Thank you so much. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Laurel Vibazon and managed by Claire Dannenbaum. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS Existential Moment on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts.